0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Cab Chat podcast. I'm Dr. Mindy Waite, and I have with me, as always, Dr. Jessica Lockhart. Hello. And this month's special guest is Dr. Alexandra Protopopova, and she is the assistant professor of the animal welfare program at the University of British Columbia. Hey, Sasha. Hi, everyone. So the reason that we invited Sasha to come on the podcast is because um a, both Jessica and I know her, B, she does excellent, excellent research, and therefore we have asked her to choose from amongst her many interesting and varied research projects, and she chose one that I don't think I, I would have even known that you were doing, Sasha, so I'm very excited to hear about some of your your work and your interest in um, animals and their impact on the environment today. Um, thank you.
1: I do have to kind of start off with saying that it's, it's definitely not something that I have worked on before. It is something that I'm very interested in, um, and I and I would like to shift into this direction, and so. Um, it- I'm definitely not an expert in this but I, but I would like to be and <laughs> I would like us to um, consider these aspects as we continue um, doing kind of our, our other research
0: so before we get into like sort of the 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 details and the science can you tell us just a little bit about yourself I, I feel like everyone probably knows you but just thank in you. case they don't
1: thank you very kind um absolutely so my name my full name is Alexandra Protopopova. um I do go by Sasha um, and I can explain a bit about that so I'm Russian um, um, I grew up in Russia as a child, and I'm also genetic Russian. Um, and so in Russia, everyone has kind of a big name, a full name, and then you also have a nickname that's associated with that full name. So Alexandra is the full name, and then Sasha is that nickname that's associated with Alexandra. So if you meet another Russian and they're an Alexandra, or Alexander, um, you can call them Sasha, and that's the same name.
0: So it's always the same? hmm Oh, I did not know that. Okay.
1: Um, so otherwise, uh, I received my PhD and my master's degree uh, from the University of Florida. There, um, I was in the Department of Psychology with a focus on behavior analysis, and my mentor there was Dr. Clive Wynn. And then after that, in 2015, um, I got my first job as, as an assistant professor in the Department of Animal and Food Sciences at Texas Tech University. Um, and there I started focusing quite a bit on um, adoption events, actually, and I still haven't published um, research from there. Um, uh, but we've, we've still kind of continued on in um, sheltering and uh and then started a new line of research on animal-assisted interventions and how behavior analysis and HEI can come together. Um, And then just last year, I got a new job at the University of British Columbia. And so I moved to Canada, and here I am.
0: Nice. Very nice. Thank you. When we emailed Sasha, I said, you know, which of your projects do you think would be most interesting to chat about right now? And so she chose something that's, I think, extremely unique. So can you tell us about how you got into what we're going to talk about today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think right around last year, a bit before then, um, I started having perhaps something that could be called the midlife crisis, uh, where oh. I wanted to...
0: You're a little, a little young for that, Sasha.
1: I re um kind of multiple things, um, and one of those things was was research. What What is the kind of research that we engage in, um, and kind of what is the most impactful type of research that we can do? And um, and I kind of started questioning myself a bit, um, because I felt myself going in directions where perhaps it wasn't the most relevant to society in the moment. And so this really led me to think, thinking about kind of what is it that we can do, and what is the most impactful thing we can do as researchers Um, and one of those things is climate change and it occurred to me that i have not actually considered climate change in my research at all Um, and i hadn't considered how the effects of climate change will affect um, our um kind of field and industry and um and correspondent research and so i really want to start focusing on that but when i say climate change and and um and i'm happy to discuss with you guys kind of the Um, the mitigation and adaptation strategies for pet ownership, and this is the topic of today, Uh, but I'm really thinking about it um, quite kind of in a broad way. So what are the kinds of things that are related to climate change? And the kinds of things are inequality, um, issues with um, human migration. So all of those things um, tie into my future research project.
0: When you were sort of pivoting into this area of the environmental impacts of of pet ownership or animal ownership in general, there, there are so many different topics that you could focus on um, is there a particular like sub sub area that that you're interested in like i know we uh, had had looked at some papers related to like you know the um environmental impacts of pet food and pet waste and zoonotic diseases, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Is there a particular area that's of most of interest to you? Or are you going to take on sort of this broad topic and then look at each of the sub areas separately?
1: Uh, That's a really good question because I think I'm not as um, focused at the moment because I'm still very much learning about all these issues and what they mean for us. Um, But the way that I'm thinking about it is that if you think of uh, thinking about climate change, Uh, we can separate those thoughts into two different categories. One that deals with mitigation and one that deals with adaptation. So what I mean by that is mitigation are the kinds of questions that deal with trying to reduce our impact Um, on climate change. So for example, those are the kinds of questions that you just mentioned about what is the impact of pet ownership? How much do animals eat? What are they eating? Are some species of animals kind of better um, from from this perspective, from sustainability's perspective um, to have in your home? And so those are the kinds of things that deal with mitigation, so reducing our impact. But adaptation is the one that's much more complex and much more interesting and maybe depressing as well mm. um, so uh, so the kinds of questions that mitigation deal with we we assume that there is something that we can do to prevent climate change from coming and I think um, what the scientists that deal with the with climate change are, are telling us that that's not quite the case mitigation is always good to consider and is always good for us to continue our behaviors that related relate to mitigation like recycling and um, not using air conditioning or those kinds of things but ultimately climate change is here and it's progressing rapidly and so adaptation type of questions uh, deal with more of those, like okay, well, what is going to be the fallout of this changing climate? What can we expect from society, and how do we adapt our own industry or our own fields, or our own research to try to predict the kinds of issues that will be arising and uh, and tackle those issues as they come.
0: And so, so it sounds like even though there are the, so there are these two different pieces to it, you indicated that like the adaptation is the more interesting of the two, is that correct?
1: Well, I think that that's the one that uh, we probably, uh, that's probably the most impactful. Okay,
0: and so uh, do, you, do you have an idea of where uh, where your focus is going to lean? I think perhaps both, uh, <laughs>
1: but uh, I rely quite heavily on, um, on student researchers in my lab. And so I have a few uh, uh, incoming graduate students that are going to be focused on several issues um, that relate to these kind of questions, both um, adaptation and mitigation. So now, uh, for, for example, in the mitigation category, we're now starting to explore kind of alternative species for companion animal ownership. So for example, rats, Pet rats. Um, if you consider what kind of, from a sustainability perspective, um, clearly rats are much more sustainable as a companion animal than a dog, especially if you're considering a large breed dog that perhaps has heavy fur on them, uh, that requires quite a bit of exercise that forces you to utilize your car to go into um, a faraway trail. And so here with a big dog that's fluffy. You're using air conditioning to try to reduce its body temperature in the house. You're feeding it a lot of meat, especially for those of us, um, myself included, I'm completely um, guilty of this. And In fact, the, the dog that I just asked to leave um, is in fact fluffy and large and also eat <laughs> foods um, that I'm just gonna now say that are probably not very sustainable, which is very high meat protein content or especially human grade ingredients that are directly competing with the with human food as well in, in, in the world.
0: And so, so let's, yes. Yeah, let's go back. Let's um I love the idea of chatting through like all of the issues and then um and then sort of some of of the solutions that you're you're potentially going to study so so from a from a larger scale perspective like what are the main issues related to um pet ownership that you have discovered
1: yeah so just in terms of the question of our um what is the impact of having a pet Mm mm-hmm um, on, on climate change. I yes. facts impacts are, are quite great. And so um, this is not from my own research at all. This is just um, putting together some of the knowledge that already is around. Um, and there's a couple of authors that are focused on um, specifically Alerting the public uh, and and us researchers that this this isn't a um, a thing like that we really do need to consider the impact of pet ownership on on, on the world. So if you think about it, there are some really um, striking kinds of data that with modeling uh, these researchers um, have discovered and they call it the ecological paw print, which I think is very adorable. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to use that throughout, <laughs> but. If you think about how many, just we're just going to focus on the US, for example, how many companion animals exist. And so, of course, we don't have accurate counts, but let's say there's about 78 million dogs, 86 million cats in the US. Um, and using their calculations, that actually is the energy requirement equivalent of 63 million additional humans in the US. So it's like adding one-fifth of the US population in addition to the current US population in terms of energy consumption, simply through food.
0: I mean, it makes sense, right? Because- is if you're I don't know the science behind it but if if you're if you believe that a vegetarian diet is uses less energy than a meat-based diet and then you think of all these pets that we have the majority of which I assume are are eat meat um, mm-hmm. then I would imagine that these animals even though they eat less are probably eating a very high energy diet.
1: Absolutely and there's so the meat aspect is of course very important. Um, we know already what impact just meat production generally mm-hmm. that's the same production it's the same industry that deals with uh, pet food as well especially when you get into the more um, kind of current trends of feeding i'm just going to call them like green free yeah so um, exactly green free higher meat protein human grade ingredients rather than byproducts so all of that adds to these um to to the unsustainability of the issues but and there's now a new new kinds of proteins, new sustainable proteins that people are attempting, for example, insect protein in pet food, which is very interesting. Um, but I was in fact quite surprised that insect protein is not as amazing, actually, as, as I had imagined. Um, it's definitely certainly better than feeding meat, but it's, for example, they, um, uh, ins- to raise insects, you, it requires about 12 times less energy than feeding cattle. And so it's quite significant when you compare insects to, let's say, beef. But when you compare it to pigs or chicken, it's only twice less. So it's only half, um, which I was surprised by. And so I'm not sure if these kind of alternative proteins, like insect proteins, are really the solution. Because you also have to remember that... It's not just the ingredients that matter. It's also the production system, the transport of the food, the sales, the mm-hmm. packaging, and all of that energy that goes into it.
0: And it'll be interesting to see... So. If there are going to be alternative um, protein sources utilized for food, after the recent, I'll just call them issues with, you know, DCM and the grain free diet and the research that essentially has yet to be done there, I could certainly see the public uh, being slow to change up their protein sources again. Or change yeah. up change up the sort the ingredients of their, their dog's food.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's also a difficulty where we as individuals, we obviously love our companion animal and we want the best for them. And so for example, I'm just gonna pick on myself, the easiest. I'm seeking out human grade ingredients because I think I believe that's what's best for my personal dog. Um, and so but And so it would be very difficult for me to sacrifice my dog's health for the purpose of sustainability. And so that, I think that's also a huge issue that from a welfare perspective, is this the right thing to do anyway? Mm -hmm. Uh, Given, I'm assuming, of course, that it's a lower quality protein, but perhaps it's actually not at all, but... Uh, I'm thinking more from a consumer attitudes perspective. Right,
0: Jessica, you've worked you've worked in this area before. What are your thoughts here?
2: One one of the things I keep thinking is, you know, pet ownership is is a bizarre thing, but it's been part of the human evolutionary history for you know almost a hundred thousand years, and so for dogs in particular, we've really done a number on them, and they they are a domesticated species. They respond to our signaling. I mean all the way down to their nutritional needs are pretty well parallel to the scraps that humans produce right i mean we've that's kind of what we've built them to be um And so for dogs, I think, you know, if we're meeting nutritional needs and we are providing a diet that is going to support muscle, bones, brain health, um, vibrancy, just really a diet that is geared toward making animals have their healthiest life, especially ones that we've domesticated, then, you know, I'm all for it. But to make a decision on an ingredient because of environmental impact I start wondering well okay where where is the trade off in that because I I guess I'm like oh well, I don't want to trade the health of my companion when if left to their own devices their foraging and scrounging would give them something much better than you know ground up cricket and mealworms but um, you know
1: Which, uh, you raise a really interesting point um, kind of what is the natural diet quote of, of a dog um, and if we think that 80 percent of the world's dogs are free-ranging rather than mm-hmm. they don't necessarily live in our western type societies where we have we feed them commercial dog food in the house and they're constrained to the house um, there was a recent study 2018 by Butler et al where they looked at, um, they collected dog feces uh, from free-ranging cows, I I believe in India, but I might be mistaken on the country. Um, And they looked at what that mass consisted of um, to try to understand what were the ingredients or the sources of the various um uh, kind of pieces of that poop <laughs> how much what do dogs actually eat um and interestingly my favorite uh, finding there was that 21 percent of the mass came
0: from human feces i knew you were gonna say that oh god <laughs> 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 it's my favorite uh piece of data ever <laughs> Yeah. So,
2: you know, when we're talking about dogs left to their own devices, they're not eating Chateaubriand every night. You know, let's be honest. Um, but then when we start talking about cats, mm. well, that's, that's completely different. And I mean, cats are, you know, there's still argument on whether or not they're domesticated. And I I fall more on the, no, they're mostly a feral species that we let live in our homes with us. And if you look at their nutritional requirements and, and what they actually need to maintain health, even in the commercial diets that are produced, I mean, the protein content, the protein quality... That has to go into cat food is very different than what goes into dog food because again dogs are just sort of like garbage disposals and people who are nutritionists don't be mad at me i know that they're not just garbage disposals. but cats on the other hand i mean they are obligate carnivores their protein requirements are very different um and if you did an analysis on on cat feces content you would find that it's made up of a lot of small whole animals, you know. So, um, so I, I think that there's that those things are important to consider when we start talking about new diets. Kind of like when I hear people discuss things like, oh, you know, I wanted to be vegetarian and I went vegan, so I'm gonna make my cat vegan. And I just, I just feel for those cats because they aren't, they can't survive like that. There's no supplementing what they have to eat. So, two
1: things that come to mind. Uh, one thing that was surprising to me. In the model that Oken, in 2017, it's the, it's the one that I was talking about, the ecological paw print model, um, he actually compared different sizes of dogs to an average cat. He assumed that a normal Average cat is about thirteen pounds, um, and in fact, that um, a small so in his model, um, a cat, an average sized cat, eats half uh, of a small dog, and so um, he translated that into the ecological pauper the EPP. Essentially, it's about like how many hectares need to be produced. You need to produce that food for that year. Um, Where a small dog, he um, counted that the EPP would be one for a cat would be 0.6. and so another way of saying it is that like. Um, how, how much carbon dioxide per year is produced. And for a small dog would be 0. 0.4 ton, whereas for a cat is 0. 0.2 tons. And so um, I think if you were to consider, so that kind of brings me to, perhaps there are some companion animals that you get the same um, benefits. And this is painful for us dog lovers to, to consider, um, which I'm very much one. And I'm unfortunately not a big compared to a cat. I, I really love my dogs. Um, but perhaps it does lead us into considering, are there alternative um, companion animals mm-hmm. that we could perhaps get given if we live in an apartment and don't allow um, the animals to forage themselves and, and whatnot so I think that kind of that that's that's my main uh,
2: thought I, I think that's an interesting way to look at it and then that brings up the question in my mind of not all animals are created equal you know if, if all we're looking at is carbon footprint of animal ownership and I'm just going to use the term animal here instead of pet or companion at this point but if we're just looking at carbon footprint Footprint and making choices based on that, then you know, like you said, small rodents would be one. I mean, reptiles would be another. You know, they eat once a week. If that, they defecate,
0: urinate maybe once a no. month. Depends on how much no. you're. No, we you're are not them. replacing <laughs> dogs with no.
2: But their carbon footprint is very, very. Oh low. my god! It's I zero. can't snuggle them. But you can, because they can, they can be quite warm. Oh. <laughs> you just have to heat them up a little bit now. Oh God. Um, but, but what I'm saying is, you know, if we're just looking cold, hard facts at, at carbon footprint, then those choices are definitely, okay, this one has the smallest carbon footprint, but you know, our, our companion animals do more than, than take up a spot in our home. And so, you know, you mentioned small rodents, but to me, I've, I've had pet rats in the past and 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 they are smart and they're intelligent and you can train them and they are super friendly, Um, but they're incontinent. And and not many people enjoy having an animal that's going to run around dribbling pee and poo everywhere it goes. And on top of that, you know, you have disease concerns. So if you want, if you are looking for an assistant animal, you know, rats can do a lot of things as assistance animals. They can bring things to you. They can push buttons. They can, they're very intelligent, you know, Um, but again, Mm you the mm-hmm. Is is that the right fit for the job? So I think that there's. I think it's fascinating to think about the fact that our our pets are adding to our carbon footprint. You know, in my mind has always been like, well, it's just a dog, and and it's great, and, if, and it couldn't possibly do anything to the environment except make it better. Um, I think some things. I, I'm definitely
1: also in agreement where there's definitely things that we can do to for people like us who can't live our lives without dogs, um, because I, I know there's the people who are listening to this are probably exactly those people as well <laughs> like, <laughs> not live without a dog um so i think there are some strategies that are available to mitigate some of those kind of carbon footprints that that they generate or that yeah to make it a bit more sustainable um, so i think one of those is certainly food uh, where one thing to consider is thinking about commercial versus home prepared and by home prepared i don't mean necessarily buying additional meat that's human grade to add to to cook for your dogs not like the uh, prey model overall or um Even home cooking. What I mean, for example, is that uh, really going back to how we were feeding dogs essentially 100 years ago, or most of the world feeds dogs, and that's really with leftovers. Um, And this is, of course, very complicated and very difficult because it does require quite a bit of education, quite a bit of risk taking as well, from the owner's perspective, that um, they may feed something that is essentially very harmful or lethal for the for the animal. And so, so it's also very difficult to recommend something like that. But nevertheless, there was a study in China that found that if you were through a modeling paradigm that if you were to feed mostly leftovers to your dog compared to a commercial prepackaged kibble, um, the environmental impact is 10 times less. Uh, I,
2: think that, I think that's interesting and it, it kind of something since you started talking about this that I was thinking about is, well, have we artificially driven up the the carbon footprint of a pet dog? Because I Absolutely. think back to, you know, when I was a, a kid, the family dogs lived outside. That That was that you know there there was none of this idea of your dogs could come into your house right they they were outside animals, you wanted to play with the dog, you went outside. Um, and I remember my grandparents were just really going crazy when they let the small dogs start living in the house, like then it was scandalous. And but now, you know, working in rescue and, and everything, if somebody comes in and says, Yeah, I want an adopted dog, because I, I want it to live in my backyard, we just immediately like, "No, what there's no way on earth that we could ever give you an animal. How could you not let this thing live inside your home? That's, you know, no, thank you. But you know, just not even. 50 years ago that was the standard yeah and, and now we've changed things and and of course now in the deep south you'll see people who own st bernard's whereas before there was no way that that animal was going to survive down here because of the the heat right A 100 degree day in a st bernard outside that they don't go together
1: absolutely and i think we've also driven up the medical costs i mean through natural selection animals who require medical continuous medical care would not be able to survive and um and again i, I say that's not at all from individual perspective that we should stop providing medical care to anyone, much more from kind of the concept of dog evolution generally, that by creating these breeds that are incapable of survival without very, very active aggressive intervention on a daily basis um that we are absolutely i think in my opinion inflating the the effects that they have on the climate Um, i think an additional one um well so i was thinking about all these things and i thought that perhaps those um the three r's replacement reduction refinement that uh, we use, if we were to conduct animal research, for example, we, we must um, consider those three R's. So like replacement, like can we replace the species of study to, this is a terrible word, but kind of quote unquote lesser species. So if we, you know, do we need to uh, use primates in research or can we get away with, um, for example, a fish species or, or even um, just cell lines. Um, reduction, do we need 20 animals or can we get away with five animals? Refinement is, um, do we need to use this procedure that may be stressful? Can we use a different procedure that's not stressful? So I think th- these three R's could be useful when we're thinking of our own strategy of mitigation. So by replacement, we can think about the species, like do we must we have our dog? Um, if we must have our dog then size, must we have a f- big fluffy dog or can we get away with a dog that's more heat tolerant and perhaps smaller so they don't need as much food. And thinking about breeds, exactly like you said, like a, some breeds have very high exercise requirements that are kind of artificially bred for that. And so with that, if we live in live in a city, that means we must use our car quite a bit to go on trails. And so all of those things are kind of deal with that replacement. And then reduction, I think this is really important. Is must we create new animals? And I and I want to talk about breeding um, specifically those breeds that are not sustainable. Rather than breeding new animals, why not adopt existing animals? We really do have enough. <laughs> animals at the moment. It's, um, and in Canada, I, I, I do have to say that if I go to the shelter, it's empty. But this is just a local kind of thing. If you're in Texas, Jessica, I know that obviously, if you go to the Dallas shelter, there's, there's a ton of animals. And so is it possible for someone to really consider that not only from the welfare perspective, but also specifically from sustainability perspective? And this one thing that's also coming up quite a bit is sharing ownership Um, And actually here's where um, dog breeders do do a good job there. I think a lot of them do have um, kind of shared ownership of animals. And so, but perhaps we can take that model into the companion sector as well. Um, that can you share with a neighbor if you have, if it's a family dog, can the dog be shared across the whole family or perhaps just to foster or ask to dog dog walk rather than have your own animal. So really kind of these concepts of sharing. And then finally, the refinement, and that's really where, you know, what kind of food, how do you uh, manage the waste? Uh, do you have to use those plastic bags or can you compost the waste? Uh, and also just, does your dog really need that plastic toy, the, the 20th plastic toy of the week? So really thinking about reducing our, that plastic and rubber that we purchase for, for the dogs as well. So I think those three R's are useful when we're thinking of sustainability.
2: Well, so I should, think I can yeah. say that I'm not sharing my dog.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, I, I totally want to share my dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Is I really, 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 really want to share my dogs.
2: Oh no, no one's, no one's getting anywhere near my dogs. They're mine. They're all mine.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Because just think, like, like for example, except um, for when
2: I go on vacation, and then yeah, I'll exactly,
0: share exactly. Then you've got someone who's happy to take them. Yeah, two. So my, my husband is elsewhere for the week, and my dogs were just. My one guy's really old, so he's pretty well behaved. But my other guy, younger, not as well behaved. Ate a rabbit, threw it up on my carpet. Eyeball rolling across my carpet. Like I just was done with this dog if I could have sent him to somebody else I would like that just sounds delightful I, I'm all for sharing
2: yeah oh that's funny I I think uh but I think that raises a good point you know I mean but um I, I guess it comes down to the relationship because I've had multiple dogs and there are definitely dogs where I'm just like oh yeah you can take that one for a week sure <laughs> and then there's other ones where it's like oh no you know no one is gonna spend any extra time with this dog this is my heart dog and and she's mine forever but you know th- I think that that. That mirrors kind of the trend in, in sheltering right now too where there's a big push for fosters and that's basically what fosters are doing right they're they're like okay well I'll own the dog for right now until the next person comes along and decides they want the dog right and and we're gonna help this animal you know transition and they' they incur the expenses of feeding um, they incur a lot of the veterinary care expenses some shelters can afford to cover everything some shelters can't afford to cover anything so you know where you're fostering for the experience is going to be a little bit different but for the most part the fosters are they're investing financially they're investing emotionally they're investing their time and then the family comes along and says oh this dog is perfect for us we'll take it and then it's you know you hand over the leash and and off they go um but again, it, it is sort of that concept of shared ownership and, and it's working really well mm-hmm. in the shelter community. Um, but I don't know, it's it's also not an experience for everyone, right? Because you are falling in love and there isn't a big emotional component to animal ownership. And, and to own them for a short time or temporarily, I think there's some people who just, who aren't going to sign up for that emotional impact. So it's... I'm interested to see how to tease apart like these emotional concepts and these emotional buckets that our companions fill versus these, you know, more pragmatic aspects of pet ownership.
0: Well, that brings That's up a I mean. super point, Jessica, because I almost feel like Sasha, when you approach this question, you you almost need to like take five steps back and first say like, what is the function of an animal in our society? Like there are obviously there are multiple functions, but for like pet owners, what is the function? of a pet. And then, how do we how do we meet that need in some other way? Absolutely. And also,
1: there's even um, a deeper question: um, Does having a dog um, reduce the likelihood that someone will have a child? And obviously, a human child is Whoa. much less sustainable. Um, and so, it can go very in very interesting directions.
0: <laughs> Whoa! That was a um, twist I did not expect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did look into it just for fun, and it doesn't seem like it's a causative effect. It is. It is the case that perhaps with um, with women. If you are, um, when you have multiple dogs, you're less likely to have children, but I wonder if it goes the wrong, the other yeah, way. Yeah,
0: I kind of think so. But,
1: um, but, but still it's, um, I think thinking of pet ownership in a very larger, um, kind of world understanding of, uh, and it's a very philosophical types of questions. Like, um, if you're thinking about what ownership even means, can we own animals and, and kind of um, if you think about how to what is the natural life of a dog in the free ranging it's a community dog so it is actually always it it doesn't it's not owned by anyone it's its own animal that multiple people are taking care of and so so I think that also philosophically asks the question of why do we feel the need to own anything rather than provide support for provide care for Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's is that deeper human you know exactly why do we have pain in animals is it to control another life form or not and, and i have a feeling that a lot of us um, myself included i'm including all of if there's anything that's perceived criticism it's directed at myself <laughs> that is it the case that we, we have this innate desire to control other or is it just to provide care? And so I think in that case, if we answer that question, we can kind of get a bit of a better understanding of whether this fostering is sufficient or do we need to have that continuous control?
0: Yeah. And I think um, the other aspect I was sort of thinking of, obviously some people have, have animals because they're useful. Like I'm thinking of, you know, anyone who has a dog that actually acts as a shepherd uh, or I would imagine there's also a subset of people who for example maybe some show dogs who aren't necessarily controlling a life or you know getting emotional support but are maybe there's a status attached to it or potentially finances so it's almost like you're not you're you're almost switching over from studying like animal behavior to studying human behavior um
1: totally and i think that what i'm interested interested in is this human animal interaction but in this kind of grander scheme of things Mm -hmm. and actually i want to go back to the point where i think you raised a super interesting one about like the shepherds actually doing a job so um like for example horses are used for transport and if we theoretically can use horses actually i don't i haven't calculated any of them um or haven't looked in the research that calculated any of the impact of horse ownership i don't know what that what that is um but if you think of what it the it's essentially substituting animal labor to uh, like machinery. And if, and, and if we think of what are the sustainability differences there, so perhaps having a car, um, so using a Jeep to herd your sheep compared to using a shepherd dog to herd the sheep, I'm, I'm suspecting that the tractor or the Jeep is, is worse. Than the, the dog, even if the, the shepherd eats a lot of meat um, and, and has that, you know, the full, all of the, none of the three R's, for example. So I think everything is more complicated than this kind of initial quick um, overview.
0: So, given the the multiple areas and like sort of the multiple layers of questions, where, where are you uh, thinking you're gonna start? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. This <laughs>
1: issue? So um, I mentioned I have graduate students coming in. And um, so I think instead of trying to tackle any of this issue kind of strategically, which probably I should, but well... I won't be able to save the world, so I I can't quite (laughs) tackle it strategically, but all we can do is just work in this field. And so one graduate student is coming in to look at um, the the very interesting question of importation uh, of dogs for rescue purposes across. um,
0: Oh, wow. That's a good one.
1: Yeah. So that would be one area. Um, Another area would be to look at the very complicated intersection between socioeconomic status, kind of service deserts, animal ownership, um, so all of those, I mentioned, this probably deals more with the adaptation question. So if we trust the scientists who are telling us what's going to happen to our world, uh, we're going to see kind of a cascade of events and, and that will lead into lots of conflict in various countries. And uh, for us in the Western world, what that means is that we're going to see quite a bit of human immigration increase. And So with that human immigration also comes cultural immigration. So we're going to have lots of cultures coming together, um, but also lots of uh, inequity that's probably going to be getting even more um, severe uh, and so what does that mean and um, and actually I think COVID has allowed us a glimpse into what that means so again also with climate change not only is human migration going to be happening but we're also going to be seeing emergent diseases as the um, as the glaciers melt we're gonna see some really interesting pathogens that we have not seen before um, which is fun something to look forward to so oh my gosh minute. But with that, what does that mean for us in terms of companion animals? Um, There's a really nice initiative uh, that is started, I think, by the group American Pets Alive, but they are, and and others, where they're trying to um, exactly create these adaptation strategies. So with COVID, we have an opportunity to do so to kind of predict the future of it. Uh, Like, for example, now that we're predicting an economic depression coming up in the US, for example. That what that is going to mean is that people are going to lose their housing, so housing is going to be insecure. Does that mean are we're going to have more people losing their housing and not being able to take care of animals? So we'll, probably the shelters are going to see more need from their communities in assistance with, with animals. And so, and so the group that I mentioned and others are trying to kind of predict that and prepare their shelters to take on not just additional animals, not necessarily to take on uh, just higher intakes, but instead what kind of services can we be providing to the community Community to mitigate those issues as they come up, uh, and so that—that's what adaptation means—is that we are predicting those that those issues that will come up in the future. And COVID has given us a nice example of it. And what what are the preparation steps that are required to meet those new needs that are going to come up?
0: Just out of curiosity, Jessica, are you guys chatting about that at all?
2: Not really.
0: <laughs> I mean, it is something that
2: we're looking at. But right now, um, the number of animals that are still needing placement and needing homes has stayed pretty steady but the assumption is it's going to start to go up Mm -hmm. as people are having to downsize or move or relocate um, or just can't afford the food, can't afford the care anymore. Mm -hmm. And so our, our community outreach programs are actually trying to plan a little bit better for how to help keep animals in their home when things start getting a little bit tighter. So, you know,
0: I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here because this is a really interesting topic. So I know, one of the phrases in the shelter world is it's something like um, we're trying to make ourselves go out of business or something like that. And I had always wondered, you know, as, as I felt like the country was getting better at, you know, spaying and neutering. um, And we've talked a couple of times where like the shelters, there are, in some shelters, there are fewer dogs and, you know, those fewer dogs have um, greater needs. I thought maybe at some point shelters really wouldn't be a thing, but it's almost like shelters are potentially shifting to being a necessity during, like emergencies is that do you is that what you see at all personally i
1: i definitely agree with that i think i've i've seen that perspective where they're going out of business but i think it's what what that what we mean by that is certainly just the shift into yeah. communications and um, providing services rather than the simple kind of concept of just we take in animals and house them.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, with, with every natural disaster that's happened, I mean, shelters have stepped up and stepped in and been a big part of the community rebuilding. and. I think if, if people aren't familiar with pet ownership and there really are people out there who just don't own pets and I can't wrap my head around that, but they exist. Um, they, I think people who have never owned pets or have never had desire to own pets don't understand the role that companion animals play in the majority of people's lives. So I think pet ownership is probably more the norm than not at this point, especially in the U.S. and in most first world countries. And these animals play a significant role. I mean, they are family members. They're not just an accessory. It's not, you know, okay, I've got a house, a couch, now I need the dog to go on the end table. It, it, they, they are family members. They are constant companions. They are emotional support. They are, you know, a, they're just such an important part of family life. So when disaster does happen and tragedies do happen and people can't care for their animals in the short term, shelters and rescues step in with the primary goal of either reuniting or ensuring that these animals have a safe place to land which reduces the stress on the families that are having to part ways with their companion animals. So it's it is more than just oh my gosh something happened now look at all these animals that were let loose on the street man we got to clean them up you know it, it's it is a stress reduction for the people that are going through the trauma whether it's getting their animals back or just having the knowledge that their animal went to a good comfortable home and in the future if they want to get it back they know where the animal is so um and there's actually one more lesson
1: um as well kind of mm-hmm. uh, related to that where um shelters do serve kind of an important purpose of providing animals to people who need them during, like in the pandemic right now. Just I think yesterday, there was a paper published, I hadn't had not have a chance to look through it, um, but I saw just the, the, the kind of the conclusion was that um, people who have um, uh, acquired a, a dog specifically felt less stress with the pandemic. I think than cat owners actually, but but it's interesting that the, the role of animals in these kind of pandemic catastrophic events. Certainly serve a purpose for, for the humans as well, and and like you said, the shelters kind of have those multiple roles—not only to provide services for, for challenging situations, but also to actually kind of provide the animals as well. So th- there's whether that is the role of the shelter or not is an interesting philosophical question as well. But I think it's just all so complicated.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I know at the shelter I'm at, I, we right before they announced the lockdown, we got I think over sixty animals placed into foster in a single weekend because people knew it was coming, they didn't want to be by themselves. And this was a great way this gets to that sharing ownership thing. You know, they weren't, these aren't people who would naturally go out and get an animal because of the commitment. They're like, hey, we're going to be, we're going to be at home everybody's going to be at home. Well, let's just now is a good time to try this fostering thing. So it's, it's kind of a win-win all the way around. So it's sort of that idea of borrowed ownership, if you will, and, mm-hmm. and getting the benefits of having a companion, but also knowing that when we get back to normal, which fingers crossed and knock on wood is coming, um, then the animal, it's going to be okay to let that animal go to a different home.
0: It's really nice that the, that the shelter's there almost to, I mean, once again, there could be multiple fun- Functions for shelters, like now and moving forward, those could change. But I love that the shelters there is the middleman. It makes me think of, um, I was looking at um, like doggy wheelchairs for my old guy. And you can either buy them at full price, which is like $600, or there's a nonprofit through which you can... um, donate a significant sum of money but not $600 like half of that and then you get the wheelchair you essentially borrow it and when you're done you give it back and somebody else gets it so if without them the middleman of the shelter or the nonprofit, like you're out there buying whatever the heck it's not super efficient um, so it's almost like do you think the shelter at some point might become that middleman of um, hey we're all going to borrow these dogs and everyone's going to win and mm. it's financially I think, feasible
2: we, I, we actually have a program called borrow a buddy where you can come in and, and you can take an animal on a walk. You want to go for a walk today? Hey, we've got a dog that wants out come and come and take it take it on a walk you want to go home and take a nap over lunch you can check out a dog and take it with you for a quick nap in your house um you want it for a weekend you know <laughs> so so we i think that's a
0: that's a really good point a good question so that'd be something that would be really interesting to study is like if if a local shelter has that option how efficient is that um you know outcome wise and does it does it um function the same as having your own dog does it meet that need that would be a really cool one if, if you have a shelter near you who does that
1: absolutely i think the foster research that's now starting to come out from um so primarily um is is definitely shedding light onto that from and also from the animal perspective as well what does that do to the stress levels of dogs when they enter multiple homes and it seems like it's actually not as severe as one might imagine Um, so i think there's yeah there's definitely research coming out from that and i think it's it's, it definitely should and, and will expand
0: so um given that that you have all these potential like levels and areas for the people who are listening some of whom are gonna be pet owners and some of whom are probably gonna be professionals what are some of like the the main points that you want them to like really chew on and take home with you? well I think the
1: um, just that it's not negligible uh, the effect of companion animals on um, climate change and that we definitely need to take some responsibility and that owning a an animal in your home is a luxury rather than kind of this right and so I say that actually now that I, I think I'm going to contradict myself uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily luxury but what I mean is that it's um it's something that um one might think through so not just going kind to of be mindless and okay I'm going to feed the best people but what responsibility do I have to plan it one kind of funny part I just relatively kind of just for fun I counted if we were to have a pet tax what that could be um and I based that on the flight tax so kind of if you um, if you were to use an airplane you could essentially pay your own tax um, through various companies and so based on that, um, just for fun uh, one year of a small-sized dog will be equivalent to a four-hour flight, so you should probably pay $96 for tax a year, so it's not so much. A medium-sized dog would be a 13-hour flight at $312, and a large sized dog is about a 34-hour flight for $816 a year, and a cat would be just $48 a year. <laughs> so if someone uh, is feeling particularly guilty about their animal, one can always pay for through that. <laughs> but otherwise, I think just, just being a bit more conscious about what kind of choices were um what we're doing with our companion animals and really kind of think through what our actions um, do to the planet but I think for professionals, this is more for pet owners, uh, but for professionals I'd love for us to follow the steps that shelters are, are doing and predicting the future of it and really trying to understand in the kind of in the animal welfare fields, uh, what are the kinds of issues that will be coming up in the next 10, 20 50 years and can we establish programs now And because now it's not a catastrophe, well now it actually is a catastrophe but it's, it's the worst ones are yet to come. What can we do now to prepare for those things? And for us researchers, I want us to ask the question of ourselves, well, what are those things um, what are the questions can provide guidance to in mobile for agencies so that they could then make decisions and create those programs now to prepare for future. Um, so what are the kinds of things that we can study now that will be useful for that future?
0: And then I think my very last question to you would be, do you, I know you just, um, you just started the new job essentially, but do you have any recommendations for resources if people want to learn more? Are you going to put things up on your website or other places you'd recommend they go to look? Um,
2: no, I don't
1: really have a website like that. Um, it would probably be to, I'm not sure there is a whole lot of research right. on companion membership. So I think the, some of the papers I have sent you guys in terms of food um, or just the, the, ecological paw print type research, I think mm-hmm. that would be a great place to start. But I think most of it is, is to, is not necessarily to and doing a reading. I think it's more of kind of thinking about these things and, um, and trying to figure out what, what it is that we're missing, what knowledge are we missing and try to kind of seek out that knowledge. So, So, So it's really... Um, it's really not kind of, it, it's it's something that is yet to be done. I think it's not something that is currently done actively. That's
0: good. Sounds good. Well, my thought is I'm excited to have you back in a year to see what you have found. There are just an infinite number of questions in this area. So I'm really excited to see where your students go. Um, Jessica, any other questions? Nothing that I can think of right off the top of my head, but I
2: I think it's it's interesting. I'd like to see how you tease apart kind of, you know, the the reality of pet ownership ownership versus the you know like you were saying these carbon footprint type of things or or even if it's something that you need to tease apart right is it just more being mindful about what pet ownership means environmentally either to you or your community Um, or is it you know we need to think rethink pet ownership in general yeah from multiple angles
0: probably
1: exactly i was thinking it's such a complicated question because from the animal welfare perspective that's, yeah. that's it's own topic by itself what does it mean to uh be a pet yeah
0: mm-hmm. for sure okay well we will have sasha back uh in a year and we will see what she has found thank you, you have so much the Sasha. in a year yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate it and this was a very um a very different conversation than what we typically have so it's pretty fun thank Thank you, I enjoyed it
2: a lot.